You can be seated. And if you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 9 in your Bible. We're in Mark chapter 9 today. Last week we looked at the glorious transfiguration of Christ in Mark 9, verses 1 to 13. And this week we pick up in verse 14 as Jesus with uh, Peter and James and John are coming down the mountain to meet back up with the other nine apostles that they have left while they've gone up to the mountain to see Jesus' glory and to hear a voice from heaven. What a contrast it is that we find between these two scenes, last week's and this week's. From the heavenly glory and the voice of God, truly a mountaintop experience like no other, to a bunch of hullabaloo and commotion and chaos going on in the town. Look down at verse 14, and we'll read to verse 32. And when they came to the disciples, that is when the three came to the other nine disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, that is Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mutant deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise." But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. In the movie Groundhog Day, which I know is a horrible transition from that passage we just read, isn't it? It was no better in the first service. In the movie Groundhog Day, Bill Murray's character asks his producer and in romantic interest, played by Andy McDowell, 
If you only had one day to live, what would you do with it? The world's going to blow up. What would you do? And ever the TV news producer, Andy McDowell's character, says, I'd want to know where to put the camera. And of course, the conversation goes on from there. Not much is made of it. But just think of that last line I said. I'd want to know where to put the camera. Where do you put the camera in Mark 9? We know the location. We know where it's going down, so to speak. But still, where do you put the camera? Do you have a good angle on this story? Is there another angle, a better one? Well, today we're going to look at this scene in Mark 9 from three different camera angles. We're going to let the story play out from a first angle and a second angle fairly quickly. And then we're going to back up and view the whole scene again from a fairly different angle. The last and third angle will really be the bulk of the sermon. That's what you have on your sermon notes page on the back of the bulletin. That's just the third angle there. I thought of the first and second angle after that went to the printer. But before we get to that third angle, which I think is the most important, we shouldn't miss the two angles that are probably the most obvious to us, especially if you've been with us thus far in our study of Mark. So here's the first angle. It's the human level, the human level. There's an utterly desperate father with a demon-ravaged son. That's the problem the disciples were trying to fix. That was the basis for the argument between the disciples and the scribes. That's what the crowd was watching, even gawking at. That's what this father was concerned about and described in great passionate detail. It's what Jesus asks about in verse 21. How long has this been happening? It's what Jesus heals and fixes at the end of the story. And Mark takes pains to describe the severity of the son's condition in an unusual way, at least for Mark. You might remember that Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels, and he's also the quickest storyteller. So this is noteworthy, that in Matthew and Luke, when they tell this story, They tell it with about half the words or less, as Mark does. Or put the other way, Mark tells the same story as Matthew and Luke with twice and almost three times as many words as Matthew and Luke do. I think it's the only place like this. You see, there's a, in verse 17 and 18, a six-fold description of the son's tormented condition And then verse 20, there's a fourfold description of one of these demonic fits. And then verse 21 and 22, a fourfold description from the Father as he speaks again. And let's just read each of those back to back. Let's feel the weight of this situation and try to put ourselves in this Father's shoes. The middle of verse 17. Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit, a demon, that makes him mute And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Verse 20, they brought the boy to Jesus, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. 
This has to be one of the saddest descriptions in all the Bible. It's heart-wrenching. But the passage also shows Jesus' compassion, his kindness, his care. I love verse 21, Jesus asking the father, how long has this happened to him? It's so pastoral. It's what a pastor might do at a, at a hospital bed. How long has this been happening? In verse 26, after the demon came out, the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. I'm sure the father, more than anyone there, was holding his breath. What does this mean? He had a demon, but he was alive. Is he now demon-free and dead? But just as quickly as he, th as he thinks that, Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. We can't overlook in this story the things that we've seen so many times in the miracle stories before in Mark. We've seen human suffering. Human suffering is not only real, but it's heart-wrenching. And Jesus is kind and compassionate and capable to deal with it. Here's the second, second camera angle through which we can view the story. A cosmic level. We can see the story through a cosmic lens, you could say. Demons are real. They're powerful. They're destructive. But Jesus is infinitely more powerful. The boy's suffering might look like epilepsy or seizures. You may have thought that when we were reading through. And hence, you might be tempted to think that this is just epilepsy or seizures. You might be thinking, well, these are ancient people. They didn't have the medical categories that we have today. They did the best they could. It looked scary and strange, and they thought it was demonic possession. And that's an understandable assessment if you're a skeptic of the Bible. However, for those of us who know that Jesus trumps all of our assumptions and all of our assessments, we know that we have to conclude that this is indeed a demonic possession and an exorcism. It's not mere illness, because Jesus called it a spirit. He named it, he cast it out of the boy. Satan and demons are real, but Jesus is stronger, and he came to triumph over them, to destroy them. He came to bind up and plunder the house of the strong man. That victory was later won in the cross and resurrection of Christ. And it will be more realized to the fullest level when Jesus returns once again someday. But those things were hinted at in these exorcisms. As Jesus traveled about and healed, he pointed to a day of perfect healing, restored bodies. As he went around and drove out demons that were plaguing people, he was pointing to the day when Satan will be buried in the abyss. Note the vivid imagery of this cosmic battle, which is no match for Jesus, of course. Verse 20, they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And verse 25, he rebuked the unclean spirit. You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out, literally screeching, and convulsing him terribly, it came out. There is a cosmic battle, and Jesus wins.
Now, I'm convinced that neither of those angles are Mark's primary angle in telling us the story. What we've said so far is all true. I don't think it's Mark's primary point, at least not here, even though those points have been primary points in other similar stories in Mark's gospel so far. So what is the primary camera angle in this story? The third angle is what we might label the faith angle. And now we come to really the sermon proper. The issue of faith, belief, or lack thereof, is all throughout this passage. There are four explicit references to faith or belief, and maybe four or five implicit references to faith or a lack of faith in this passage. One indication that this is not your typical demon possession in exorcism story is that the ending of the story is unusual. It's unusual compared with other similar stories in Mark. In healing stories or exorcism stories in Mark, there's the healing and then there's thankfulness from the one who brought the one to Jesus or thankfulness on the one who got healed by Jesus. Maybe there's a conversation between Jesus and the one who was healed. Or maybe it will just conclude that the crowd marveled at all these things, something like that. But here in Mark 9, the focus at the end of the story isn't on the healed boy or the thankful father or the amazed crowd. That's unusual. Immediately instead, the camera zooms in on the disciples and a little conversation with Jesus. The story is about them. The story is for them. It's about discipleship. Notice that the story begins with the disciples' inability to cast out the demon, and it ends with a discussion about their inability to cast out the demon. That makes for bookends in the story. And bookending, so often in the Bible, is used by God and these human authors to, to mark out an intention for the whole thing. Mark is telling us it's about the disciples. We also have to remember where we are in the gospel according to Mark here in chapter 9. Remember, the first half of Mark was all about who this man is. And hence, there were many miracles, healings, exorcism stories. But at chapter 8, verse 29... The who question is answered. Peter answers it. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. The rest of Mark from there on out is about Jesus' mission, not his identity. It's about the cross. It's about what it means to follow a Messiah who's going to the cross. There are no other demon stories in the second half of Mark other than the one we're looking at today. There's only one other miracle story in the second half of Mark other than the one we're looking at today. Miracles in the first half were there to teach who this is. And these two miracles in the second half of Mark are there to teach us about belief. What does it mean to believe? What is faith? What does it look like? What does faith do? So let's replay the story again with the camera angle on, on it that we've labeled faith. Let's consider four different people, or four groups of people. 
And mostly, they show us what faith is not. First, faith is not dispute. The scribes show us this. Faith is not dispute. The most obvious group to show us what faith is not is the scribes. Scribes and other Pharisees have been, well, jumping out of bushes left and right, playing a gotcha game with Jesus to debunk him and his teaching and his miracles and his followers. So chapter 2 and chapter 3, there are are at least three or four cases of that then. And then chapter 7 and chapter 8, and now here again in chapter 9, the scribes show up. They're not interested in truth. They're interested in debunking. And what an opportunity they find when they happen on the scene with nine disciples and not their master. A man with a demon-possessed son asking for healing. And the disciples try and try and try. They fail. The scribes pounce on this. Arguing, it says. Questioning. Shaming, probably. Making a scene. Never mind that they are also impotent to cast out the demon. Never mind that they care little for this man's suffering. They simply see him as a pawn to be used in this game against Jesus. Here's the point. Sometimes faith actually grows out of questions, legitimate questions. And as they get legitimate answers, questions are removed. And faith grows sometimes. Sometimes faith grows out of questions. And sometimes doubt is proven by questions and dispute. Sometimes unbelief hardens as questions multiply. Secondly, faith is not curiosity. The crowd, the gawking crowd show us that faith is not curiosity. Picture the scene. You have the father and his son, the disciples around them, intermingled with them, healings being attempted. The scribes inject themselves into that inner circle, accusing the impotent disciples. And then around all that is a great crowd just eating up the drama of this scene, watching to see if there will be a healing, watching to see if this boy will have one of these episodes again. Watching the scribes accuse and argue. Then the crowd hears that Jesus is coming back down from the mountain. So they run for him. Let's see what he's going to do. They're amazed. This crowd is like a, like a, a crowd on a, a mid-school playground at recess. There's a fight over there. So they run over there and they huddle around it and watch the fight. And then the cool kid can now dunk on a 10-foot rim. Let's go over there. They're just flittering about. Oh, they're very interested in Jesus, very curious about the whole thing. They're excited. But these are not the same things as faith. Faith is not curiosity. Thirdly, faith is not a last resort. The father. Here we come to the desperate Father, And this one will take more time than the first two did since it takes up so much of the text in the story. Verses 17 to 27 show us this father. 
However much we can sympathize and empathize with this man's horrible anguish of watching his son being tormented day by day, almost destroyed, years on end. We still have to acknowledge that there are some hints here that this man seems overly focused on the suffering of his son, wrongly focused on the suffering of his son, to the neglect of seeing Jesus aright and trusting him truly. Apparently the father was more consumed with his son's suffering than he was with Jesus' identity and ability. And here's where the slow, repetitious descriptions in the story of the boy's suffering sort of get flipped upside down and can be viewed somewhat negatively. Especially when compared with a couple other healings in Mark where there's great faith demonstrated. Like the woman with that flow of blood in chapter 5. Her focus was on getting to Jesus and touching the helm of his garment that she might be healed. We're only told by Mark, the narrator, what her issue is. Her words and her thoughts are on Jesus. Or the Syrophoenician woman in chapter 7. We're only told briefly and only by Mark that her daughter was demon-possessed. All of her words are about her unworthiness and her appeal to Jesus to let the breadcrumbs just fall off the table for the dogs. It was great faith. However, the man in Mark 9, underneath the pain of it all, the reality of it all, there does seem to be some complaint in his words to Jesus. You see in verse 17, I brought my son to you for healing. Implication, you weren't there. So I asked your disciples to cast out the demon, but they were not able. He sounds exasperated frustrated, out of options. And Jesus interrupts him right there. In verse 19, he exclaims, Oh, faithless generation! And of course he has the Father in mind when he says, Oh, faithless generation! The Father was the last guy talking. Jesus interrupted him. And yet, this man is only one man. One man doth not make up a generation. Jesus doesn't just have the Father in mind. He definitely has the scribes in mind who are arguing with the disciples, trying to debunk the way. It's likely Jesus also has the crowd in mind as part of this faithless generation. And it's probable that he also has the disciples in mind. The disciples were not able to cast the demon out. And that was something Jesus commissioned them to do in chapter 3 and again in chapter 6. Oh, faithless generation. And then he adds a couple rhetorical questions. Verse 19, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? You should hear frustration there. And yet not just frustration. It might look like, it might seem like those questions are saying the exact same thing in different ways. I think the second question is one of frustration. How long do I have to put up with you people? But the first question speaks to the urgency of the need to believe. How long am I to be with you? How long do you think you got? I'm walking to Jerusalem. I'm going to the cross. The days are numbered. When are you going to get it? Especially you disciples. You've seen so much. You've heard so much. Hmm. 
Remember, Jesus has just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. He showed the three his glory. They heard the Father speak. They didn't get it. He comes down, and there's a chaotic scene with inept disciples. While Jesus is frustrated with the faithlessness that's all around him, he nevertheless takes a gentle turn with what's next. He says to the Father, how long has this been happening to him? And we can feel the pain of the Father when we hear him say, from childhood. I mean, is there any suffering in this world that's more heartbreaking than the suffering of a child from childhood? But from there, the Father launches into more detail about the demon's torment. He's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Now, that should be read sympathetically. That's ridiculous to think of a child possessed by a demon who hurls him into fire to kill him and hurls him into water to kill him, and this happens often. It's unthinkable. But we should read it as well, fully aware of the shortcomings of this man's faith that are clearly demonstrated throughout this. He's a desperate man, but not all desperate people are believing people. Desperate people are not always believing people. And this man betrays that when he says next, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. It's not being picky to point this out as a shortcoming because Jesus rebukes it right after. He mocks it almost. If you can, if you can, just think of each of those words. If you can, that's a very different statement, if you can do anything, than the leper in Mark 1 who said, if you will, you can make him well. You can make me clean. The question is not Jesus' ability, but his willingness. The father seems to see Jesus as something of a last resort. He doesn't seem to be optimistic here. The disciples couldn't do it. You probably can't either, but we're here. We might as well find out if you can. And what Jesus says to him next is both a corrective and reason to hope. All things are possible for one who believes. All things are possible for one who believes. This verse and others like it in the gospel accounts are some of the most misunderstood and misapplied in all the Bible. Jesus is not here teaching us that whatever you believe will come true if you believe it enough. You want a Porsche? Believe in Porsches. Just believe and just stand back because it's coming. No. He's not teaching that faith can do anything, but that Christ has the power to do anything. So believe in him. That's the difference. Christ has the power to do anything, so believe in him. Jesus isn't here talking about belief as some sort of positive thinking, optimism. Just believe, like some sort of coach's locker room speech. 
Just believe, guys. Or some sort of new Nike campaign. Just believe. No. Jesus isn't talking about belief or faith detached from his identity and mission. Remember, that was the man's problem. If you can do anything, implied that he didn't know who it was he was talking to. He didn't understand the power. He didn't understand the man. He didn't understand what Jesus came to do. And that's why he said, if you can do anything. Jesus' point, all things are possible for one who believes, is that there's an object of that belief that must be understood. Jesus is the object of that faith that's necessary for this man and for any who would be saved. It's not the intensity of the faith. It's not the consistency of the faith. But it is the object of the faith that saves. Faith is not something you stare at or try to work up. Faith is like a pair of glasses through which you look at Jesus and see him aright. You apprehend him and you reach out for him. All things are possible. Not just healing, but salvation, glory, eternal life, reconciliation to God. Jesus confronts faithlessness. And yet he's so gracious to do so, isn't he? He's so gracious to confront, even if for a moment he's frustrated and it's clear that he's a little hot, righteously speaking. He's gracious also in the way he confronts faithlessness here. He could have just railed and kept on railing. He rails a bit and then really there's a whole lot of gentleness here and nudging. The man's response to what Jesus says is one of the best in Scripture. And here, there's a turn. While he may not have had much hope for the future early on, while he may maybe seem to be more consumed with the degree of suffering his family experienced than with the identity and power of the Savior, once confronted, he's corrected. And he does believe. In fact, he even recognizes his need to be helped to believe more. Verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. This man quickly came to see that Jesus not only can heal his son, but also can help him with his problem of unbelief. And that is great faith. In many ways, that is great faith. It's humble and bold. This man's faith is realistic, but not fatalistic or lazy. And even us today, Christians, we can identify with this prayer, can't we? I believe. Help my unbelief. No faith this side of glory is pegged at 100%. Not the Apostle Paul's, not Martin Luther's. Not yours, not mine. All of our faith is filled with some doubt. So this is a prayer that we should know well. We should have it memorized and we should pray it often. I believe, help my unbelief. You see, at times we believe that God is sovereign. We know it to be true and yet we worry. I believe, but help my unbelief. We believe that God has forgiven us of our sins. And yet we feel dirty. 
We bear our guilt. We believe that God loves us and has accepted us. Yet sometimes we feel like he's distant or mad. We believe that the scriptures are like spiritual food for Christians. And yet we go sometimes a long time starving ourselves. Pray for more faith. Faith is a gift from God and it is sustained by the one who has the power to rip a demon out of a kid where he has gripped that soul for maybe decades. Faith is not a last resort. Fourthly, faith is not believing in self. And here we come to the confused disciples. They show us that faith is not believing in self. In verse 28, they entered the house and his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. There are two surprising things in what Jesus says there. This kind implies that there are apparently degrees of difficulty with demons. That some demons are more buggers than others. Of course, none of them are any match for Jesus. But apparently some cases are harder. It's also surprising to hear him bring up prayer. Why did Jesus bring up prayer here? Well, one thing we can say is that Jesus isn't saying that some cases require prayer and others, you don't even need to pray. Jesus in no way would discourage prayer. In fact, his point is really not about how to exercise the difficult demons. The point of this, just like the rest of the story, is a lesson in faith, in belief, even though that's not what he says. He says, prayer is how it happens. In Matthew's account of this same story, Matthew 17, when it gets to this point, Jesus answers the disciples' question why they couldn't cast out the demon, he says, because of your little faith. So apparently there's a relationship here between prayer and faith, one and the same. And prayer is an expression of faith, isn't it? Prayerlessness is an expression of faithlessness. Prayerlessness is an indication of trusting in self. Jesus isn't here giving them a recipe for better exorcisms. He's not giving strategy here. He, he didn't say, well, it didn't work, guys, because you didn't use the right 12-step demon trial thing that I told you about which he never told them about, by the way. And this passage, with the rest of Scripture, ought to make clear that that kind of stuff is nonsense. Jesus is not teaching them about the power of prayer. That if you can do this thing of prayer, you can break on through to the other side. You ride on clouds and you hurl demons across the universe. Not about the power of prayer. He's saying something much more simple than any of that. He's saying, guys, you couldn't cast out the demon because you didn't pray. And you didn't pray because you didn't think you needed to. You were self-sufficient. And when tested with your inadequacies, you didn't think to pray then either. Perhaps they were trusting in technique. Certain words, a certain order of words. 
Or perhaps the manner in which they've seen Jesus do this so many times before. Jesus uses this voice. He uses this volume. He says these words and in this order. And they trusted in that. Perhaps. Perhaps they were trusting in their status as apostles. The sent ones. Jesus' emissaries. Again, in chapter 3, he appointed the 12 to go out and preach and have authority to cast out demons. And again in chapter 6, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Perhaps they believed that that status meant sure victory. Perhaps they were being presumptuous based on previous successes. It's worked before, of course it'll work. We've did it before, of course we can do it again. Experience can be a good thing, we all know that. We know that from experience. But it can also lead us to forget to pray. That first child you have, man, you pray, don't you? You pray. I mean, I don't want to screw this up. We've got to teach them. We've got to do it right. We've got to give them the right foods. And you pray. Other kids come along. Well, to speak for myself, I... I'm convicted. I I think I pray less. I think I know how to do it, kind of. We've done it before. Nothing that shocking will happen tomorrow. We've seen a lot. We've got four kids. I should be praying more for more kids. And experience sometimes leads me to forget to pray. Your first day in the job, your first time teaching a Sunday school class for kids the night before. Oh, you pray, Lord, help me not to say something stupid. Help me not to cuss in front of kids. <laughs> Especially if they're crazy. Lord, give me peaceable kids. Maybe 10 years later of teaching third grade or something, you can prepare your lessons the night before or even wing it the next morning and not pray a stitch. One thing we can conclude about these disciples is that they were apparently trusting in themselves. Their question betrays this. Why could we not cast it out? They didn't feel inadequate for the task at first. And then when faced with their inadequacy and impotence, they didn't pray. I can so relate. What do you do when you feel inadequate? What do you do? How do you compensate for it? Here are some things I've done over the years. Work harder. Try harder. If at first you don't succeed, try and try again. So more grit, longer hours, put in the work, put in the time. Get advice. Figure out how it's done. Crack that nut. If it were too hard, no one would do it. Figure out how the pros do it. Or sometimes I'm less courageous and I just quit before I actually have to do it. Especially so that no one will find out that I'm as inept as I am. What do you do when you're found out to be inadequate by others? Fake it? Do you blame someone else? Pretend not to care? That's a stupid thing anyway. Talk about something else that you're very good at. Well, I've dealt with my inadequacies with these Hopeless remedies and silly band-aids over the years. Whether it was my first job at 14 or seasons of my academic career or house projects or pastoral ministry 
last week. We try to deal with inadequacies with masks instead of praying. In college, I had the opportunity to preach maybe a dozen times or so. Uh, One of my professors was also a pastor of a small church, and on Wednesdays, he'd invite occasional students to come in and preach for his Wednesday night service. And if it went well, then you got invited back to do another one, another one, another one. And and so, again, maybe you've done 10 of these or so, and... uh, The last one was during my senior year, during finals week. I was engaged to Sarah, about to be married in in three months, packing up my apartment and moving out, moving back to Michigan. The previous nine or ten had gone really well. This professor was very encouraging, you know, was very commendable, commending. And this was a busy week for this last one, and I thought, I got this. I took my text 2 Timothy 2.1, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I thought, ah, I've heard that preached before. I can preach that. I'd heard that you know, preachers eventually get enough in the well that they can really just sort of get up and talk in front of people, and, and it's pretty good. And I thought, I bet I'm there. <laughs> Which, by the way, you're never there. In fact, the more you preach, the more dry the well seems to get because you're constantly trying to get fresh water, fresh water, fresh water. So I stupidly thought, yeah, I got this one. And I got up and preached and I said, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. You gotta be strong, real strong. You gotta be strong in his grace though. And it's in Christ Jesus. I don't know what I said. It was a bad sermon though. I didn't know what to say. I, I... And this professor would take students who preached for him in his office afterwards, and he'd talk with them about the sermon. He'd go over it with them. Very great thing to do. Uh, We've had plenty of conversations like this in the past. They've gone well. But this one began like this. What happened out there? (laughs) It's bad to trust self. It's important to know our inadequacies and to confess those inadequacies, to ask for help. It's kind of Jesus when we feel inadequate. Do you know that? It is kind of Jesus when he puts you in over your head, whether it relates to your ability or whether it relates to suffering. When you feel inadequate, when you feel desperate, you pray. 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, It was good that we were under a sentence of death. And he means that literally. We were condemned to die in prison. It was coming soon. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Let me close with two conclusions, some of which we've already talked about. One, faith can be tested by prayer. Faith can be tested by prayer. Why do we pray? Is it because of discipline or routine? We always pray after we read our Bibles in the morning. or We always pray before these meals. We always pray before we go to bed at night. Do we pray because we need to get what we think we need? Do we pray to make ourselves acceptable to God? Because he'll like us if we, you know, dot our I's, cross our T's, and keep our noses clean. 
Lord, do we pray because we recognize our desperate neediness and we seek to rely on him because we believe if he doesn't act, it doesn't happen. If the Lord doesn't build the house, we labor in vain. If he doesn't protect, we stay up on watch all night for nothing. Prayer is the verbal expression of our dependence upon God. It's sort of faith uh, verbalized. It's desperate need verbalized. And these disciples didn't pray when faced with their inadequacies. They didn't seek God. They didn't ask. And get this, even as the story turns the page, they still don't ask. Look at verse 31 and 32. He was teaching his disciples saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. They were afraid to pray. Oh, I know it doesn't say pray, but that's because when you're with Jesus, praying to him is called conversation. Right? For us, it's prayer. And notice the connections Look back at verse 24 with the man saying, I believe, help my unbelief. It's a prayer. He asked. And Jesus brings up the issue of prayer. It's a matter of prayer. That's why you were unable. And then we come to verse 32. And they didn't understand. And they were afraid to ask. They had just been given the very words to say, the perfect words to say the next time they only partially get something that's going on. I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me see. Help me. They were afraid to ask. And yet this thing that they don't get, they will eventually get. And they will come to see that it is the answer for all their doubts and fears. Here's the second conclusion then. Faith is fixed on Christ, crucified and raised. It's fixed on Christ. It's not fixed on self. It's not fixed on success. It's not fixed on demons. It's not fixed on healing. It's fixed on Christ. Just review the story in your mind, thinking about what different people in the story are fixed on or fixated over. The crowd is focused on the drama of it all. They're flittering about fixing themselves on whatever seems exciting. The scribes are fixed on proving Jesus wrong and hence fixed on showing the disciples inability. The disciples are fixed on their failure and fixed on the scribes bickering. And even by the end of the story, they're still fixating on why they couldn't cast out the demon. And the father of the demonized child, at least at first, is more focused on his son than the savior who can help his son. He's rehearsing with such great detail how bad the case is and not seeing before him how glorious and powerful the savior is. What are you fixating on? What are you focused on? I pray you're like this man when that button gets pushed, when that nerve gets touched. What are you focusing on? You say, I believe. 
I know it to be true. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose on the third day. Where else can we go for eternal life? I believe, but help my unbelief. Would you pray that humble and bold prayer? Maybe for the first time. Maybe you'd say, I don't believe. Help my unbelief. Can I pray that? You sure can. You can pray. I don't believe, but I want to believe. I'm not even sure I want to believe. I want to want to believe. Would you help me with that? Jesus is that gloriously condescending, not in a bad way, in a good way. He's gloriously meek and welcoming. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. So I don't get it. What do you mean give me rest for my soul? What do you mean that Jesus had to die and be raised? What do you mean that he gave his life as a ransom for many? You don't get it? Well, keep reading and keep asking. Tell him you don't understand. Tell him you want to believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus confronts faithlessness. But then we can bring him our faithlessness and ask him to help. Christian, we need to stir up our faith daily, regularly. We need to stir up the faith of others around us. We need to stir up faith. We don't stir up faith, though, by staring at faith. We stir up faith by staring at Christ, the glorious Savior in Lord. Oh, for more faith. Let's pray for his help now. Oh, Lord Jesus, we don't know just how needy we are. But we pray that today we have come to a fuller realization of our need. And hence, that we would pray more often. Pray in general. Ask for your help. Ask you to work. Ask you to bless. And we would more often pray, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Father, let every Christian in here who does believe Right now, rejoice with great joy at the first half of that prayer. I believe. I think it's real. Oh, it's weak. It's little. But I believe. I believe I'm saved. I believe he's mine. I believe because he's merciful. I can say, help my unbelief. Lord, we need you. Help us to see you more and more until we see you face to face and we are changed and we are like you and we are done with these doubts and we are done with weak faith, we will behold you and we will be done with sin. We will see your glory and be made perfect. We long for that day. Give us faith in the meantime. Amen.